Hi everyone, it's Dr. Colin Octor here, and thanks again for joining me for another Listener's Questions episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. Before we dive into today's show, I just want to say thanks to everyone who has downloaded the show and subscribed so well. It's been a fantastic response and we're delighted with it. And a special thanks to everyone who's also gotten in contact with your questions this week via the Asking for a Parent Gmail and Twitter, Instagram and Facebook messages. We've got lots of questions in today, so stay tuned. We're still trying to keep our two episodes a week plan going at the moment, and as I've said it before, the audio may not be the greatest, but I think that the message and the content is really important and really fantastic, so I hope you can stick with us. Other people have kind of asked me, I think it's important to answer the question, why am I doing this podcast? What am I getting out of it? Well, actually, I'm getting something really good out of this. I'm getting a little bit of hope. And the hope is that I might change the one person's day or one person's understanding of their child. And the hope that we understand that parenting is simple, it's just not easy and it's a really difficult job and we need to be compassionate to each other uh, from time to time. Also important to say, I have a full-time job and so do all the people who are helping me record and put this together. So for everyone who's giving so generously of their time, it's really important that we think we're doing something good out there. And I'm just hoping that this will help a few parents out. I know it sounds corny, but it's as simple as that. So, I know everyone is busy with a very unusual life routine at present, but if you happen to find yourself with a bit of time, tell us about something maybe that has worked or something that you have a question about for you and your family, we'd love to hear about it. Anyway, on to today's listener's question. As you know, I've asked a number of friends to join me on these episodes to help not only for you to just hear my voice talking all the time, but also for some of my answers to be teased out and clarified if they're unclear. And today it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to one of my closest friends, Petrina Ty. Petrina and I have worked together in Willow Grove Adolescent Unit in St. Patrick's Mental Health Services for almost a decade, and she's a great mental health nurse, person, and friend. Petrina is the mother of three girls and is one of nine siblings, so there isn't a person on the planet who has more experiences of family life. You're very welcome to the Asking for Parent podcast, Petrina. How are you doing? Oh, thanks very much for having me on. I'm doing great. How are you coping with all that is 2020? It keeps throwing curveballs at us in terms of pandemics and everything else. So how's it all been for you? Yeah, I suppose so. It's been difficult and we're back into our second lockdown now. Um, Is it any easier than the first? Um, No, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people saying, you know, maybe there's less restrictions with schools being open, but... There's a fatigue around it that's still going and the second surge was kind of a hit to us that maybe we thought there was some end to it after the summer, whereas this time around it can be a bit more grim or difficult. But what's the parenting challenge for you? I mean, parenting in a pandemic, first of all, tell us who you have at home and tell us how that's going. Yeah, so I suppose I've got a 16-year-old Nisha, I've got Kiva who's 11 and I've got Tegan who is 7. Um, the biggest difficulty for me, I suppose, has been around my teenager and it was actually quite funny. We listened to the questions and answer podcast the other evening and she had, you know, mentioned about cutting a bit of slack. That definitely seems to be the case. It is quite difficult for her, um, although she has seen her friends now this time around with schools and that being open. But of course, you know, she's young, she's in love. And obviously her boyfriend goes to a different school. So she's finding that difficult not being able to see him. So again, the teenager, they're a cohort that have been really hit by this. I think there's windows of time that they're missing out on. And we've mentioned that a couple of times. But three girls in the house, how's that? You've, you've mixture of ages, but not genders. How, how, what's that house like? Well, for me, it's fantastic. For my husband, it's not so good. He's definitely outnumbered on that one, all right? <laughs> Absolutely. But they're all in school and they're all getting on okay and things yeah. are going okay with yeah. that. Well, listen, thanks very much for giving your time today, Katrina. I really appreciate it. You've had a chance to look through the, 
listeners' questions there. So where will we start? So the first question I have here is in relation to a lady having her eldest daughter who is almost eight. She was an only child up until the age of five when the second child was born. The second child is now three. And I suppose at this stage, she's become very interested in her sister's lovely possessions. My eldest is now experiencing what it is like for her things to be taken without permission at times and is coping with learning to share with her sister. This has been a difficult transition for her. In general, they have a lovely relationship and they have a special bond. They spent a huge amount of time together during the lockdown period with crashes and schools being closed. However, this has brought some challenges and sometimes it's like my eldest now reverts to the same. That's my behaviour as a three-year-old. This leads to outbursts of tears, upset and sometimes tantrums like behaviour from my eldest. I'm trying to balance responding to my eldest daughter's strong emotional reaction to this new situation for her with supporting her to develop a healthy response and not get too frustrated. I'm beginning to realise now that the large age gap between my two daughters possibly has resulted in my eldest daughter not having had enough opportunities to experience these situations at an earlier stage. How can I help support her best to adjust to this normal stage and life experience and not let the frustration take over? Okay, so we've got an eight-year-old and a three-year-old and the eight-year-old is struggling a little bit with the sharing of possessions and... okay. There isn't a big gap here. There is a gap, but it's not massive. But for the five-year-old, for the arrival of a new child, it is a big gap. So she's been around. She's been the queen of the hill for five years. She's had all the attention. And understandably so, when someone else moves in and you have to share that attention economy, as we always say, you're going to feel a little bit put out. But sometimes, from a baby point of view, the needs are kind of crying and changing and things. They're not very interactive. So you just kind of know... Mom needs to go and change the baby to stop them crying. But when they're a bit more verbal and a bit more negotiable, then they're actually another human being. And it can sometimes be only at that point that the sibling rivalry can happen. And we oftentimes say, oh, she took so well to a baby when she was born. It was only when they became verbal and actually started taking my stuff that the, the sibling rivalry started to happen. A degree of sibling rivalry is completely normative, absolutely normative. If you were in a relationship and you were in it for five years and your partner came home and says I'm just going to bring this other person into our relationship now and you just have to get used to it and your attention is going to be shared out you would your nose would be out of joint too and so for children it's no different they understand that the, the attention in some ways is halved and doubled each time it happens but the issue here is how do we teach this older child to get used to the sharing and participation and accepting the idea that this is the new reality in some respects and we've talked about this a lot in the episodes around uh, some of our guests have had only children and have you know talked about how to encourage them to learn how to share and turn turn take and things like that and it is something that children have to learn it's not an innate skill so your job here is to try and helpfully coach your older daughter to get used to and get better at sharing and almost the other element that she says about that there's a regressive element since lockdown that she's kind of gone back a few years and has kind of got into the the eight-year-old acting more like a three-year-old rather than the other way around. And I think that's a really good point, but it's very established that in times of transition and stress, there's a thing called a regressive pull where we go backwards and we go backwards temporarily in order to just make sure that we're still getting that attention and visibility. And an example of that, even in adulthood, is... You know, if we have a cold or a flu, we kind of tend to get a baby voice and say, oh, so sick. and we kind of use that to elicit kind of care and attention. And it's, it's care-seeking behavior. And so if they feel that the three-year-old is getting more care, 
by being a three-year-old and an eight-year-old, they're going to adopt the role of the three-year-old in order to get that. But again, very normative, nothing unusual about that. But trying to, in this situation, it's trying to reward the behavior that you want and not to be on the case of the behavior that you don't want. And I think as a parent, it's really hard to get our heads around this. When your older daughter does engage in sharing, and I've no doubt that she does, or when she's doing or showing some compassion to her little sister, that's where you need to jump on that and really try and reward her and, and acknowledge that it's difficult to share and acknowledge that it's really brave to do that and catch her being good. I've said this in every episode, and I think I'll probably be saying it in every episode that we do, because that's what we want. If we want children to be and behave more in a way that we need to incentivize them to do that, they need to see rewards to towing the line. And, and again, if you get rewarded for sharing, then sharing becomes something that isn't just compromising your stuff. It's something that gives you visibility, gives you the attention that you need, and maybe even gives you nurturance and gives you identity. And so it's really about changing the narrative here and trying to reward her maturity and disattend to her immaturity in that way. Not easy, but a bit of vigilance around that for a, for a little bit of time should make some, some differences. Although, I mean, I'll finish on this, I think although sibling rivalry is very normative, it is something we need to keep on top of because it can kind of get more sinister and more difficult as the years go by. And if it isn't nipped in the bud early from the point of view of this degree of sibling rivalry is, is acceptable, but this isn't, uh, I would certainly be drawing a line about within the family culture about how much is acceptable, frustration, and what is absolutely not acceptable in terms of behavior. So if it ever escalates to intimidation or bullying or or even uh, sort of violence or hostility, you would really draw a line and that's not excusable. Um, and sibling rivalry is an explanation for your frustration, but not an excuse for it. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. And I suppose I can definitely relate to this uh, listener. I suppose I had quite a big age gap, similar, about five years between my two. And it's definitely about rewarding the positive behavior. And I suppose I'm coming out the other end of it now. But I'm starting all over again with the middle child and the younger child. And that experience of being kind of dethroned is an interesting one, especially... So what age was your eldest when your second came? Um, I suppose she was just five, and I suppose, when my uh, second child came along. And I suppose she was the queen bee, even with, I suppose, the extended family. So right in what she said, definitely loved her as a baby, couldn't get enough of her. And then I suppose as she got older, Kiva got older and started taking out things, that's that's kind of where it all erupted. It's definitely about, you know, rewarding that positive behaviour, which I would have done with Nishi, you know, creating that kind of bit of special time. If, you know, she was positively interacting with Kiva at the time, then, you know, we used to go and maybe do a bit of movie time or, you know, with myself and her dad, that she also felt special. So you kind of were ahead of the game in terms of this, in terms of it was about incentivizing her to manage it. It was about protecting the attention economy that she didn't feel that she was losing out on too much and trying to, again, trying to encourage her to, to get into the sharing and the new way of living, which wasn't going to change. And again, my Ellis said to when my youngest was born, and you know, when do we give him back? It was a kind of a sense that this is a sort of a, a temporary arrangement. But and that's the thing. Siblings have to adjust. Can I ask you a question? I mean, you're one of nine. So that sharing piece was something that I'm guessing was... Oh, God, yeah. God love my mum. She's the patience of a saint. Um, I suppose, yeah, I was one of nine. At, back in them times, I suppose we just had to share regardless. And there was no time for kind of separating us out. Played outside a lot, I suppose. You know, these times are a lot different. Everybody's got iPads and laptops. And I suppose that's probably where most of the rise uh, start is 
she wants this, he wants that. Whereas when we were kids, it was all about imagination and I suppose playing outside because we didn't really have a lot. And from the point of view of being one of nine, would you say uh, on hindsight now that it was better because of the sense of community because there were so many of you or would, was it a bit compromised because you had to share so much? So one apple tart had to go nine ways. Uh, oh, definitely not. Um, like I said, I, I absolutely think my mom is the same. I've got three kids and I, I struggle with that. I suppose, you know, we're all extremely close now and I suppose it's it's made us the people that we are today and we just learned throughout our time together, you know, just to be able to share and uh, obviously care for each other. So hopefully that listener got something from that question. Anything else? What was next on the list there? Okay, Coleman. So the next question is in relation to a topic that... This person is contacting you as they're curious how to best to support somebody that has been alienated from their children. How does the parent manage the lack of empathy towards him and sudden refusal to spend time with him? How can the parent build a relationship with his children when they feel so negatively towards the parent? The situation which the listener here is referring to is parental alienation. It's just usually where uh, separation occurs and one parent kind of alienates the other. And it, this is a process we know in the trade to be called uh, triangulation, where the child gets caught up in the battle between the two parents. So the issue becomes that the child's attention becomes the currency to exchange unpleasantries usually. And where there's anger and resentment, one parent may try and turn the child against the other. And again, in, unfortunately, and you'll know this, Katrina, from the work that you and I do, that this can be really toxic influence on children in terms of when they're, they're forced to choose and have preferences. And there's a real onus on parents in any of these situations to rise above it and be the adult in the room. And you really, in any of these circumstances, have to put the child's welfare first. And it is, even if it means biting your tongue and taking deep breaths and trying to reserve your own fury and anger, and, and that might be entirely justified. It might be justified, but it is about the child or children in these cases have to come first. And it shows an immense demand on one's maturity and one's ability to, by all means, be frustrated about your partner or ex-partner in the company of your friends and your peers and everything else. But with your children, it's not ever advisable. There's never a situation, and if you can think of one, Katrina, you can tell me, where parental alienation worked out well. I don't have any recall of that. And I guess, and I always get, get asked about the, the kind of, how do you know what's the right thing to do? Because, and you would agree with me on this one, we've seen where parents have managed separation brilliantly Absolutely. and how that has had a massive impact on the children's sense of integration and the, the sense of belonging. And, and it just removes a pressure from the child when the parents are able to, and they may not get on, but they co-parent well. And I think from that point of view, we see how, what works and what doesn't. And alienation doesn't work. So getting back to this man's question, how do we stop alienation happening? It really is difficult because you depend on the other person and you don't have control over their actions. But what you do have is control over your response to their actions. And I think pulling on every piece of maturity and wisdom and patience that you might have, it's about reacting in terms of what is the best reaction for the child in this example rather than what's the best reaction for me and they may be very different things it's not about making the alienation and again we spoke a bit about polarization in the last episode with tamara the more you take up a position the more polarized you're going to get so if we have that argument and you're at six and i'm at four and i take a position of going to three then you'll go to seven and i'll go to two and you'll go to eight and soon we'll find ourselves completely opposite ends of the 
the argument and it becomes poetry, hostile, etc. It's almost about being the bigger person in the situation and taking the step in, parking your own anger and trying to mend the bridges, trying to be, you know, if, if you're dealing with someone who isn't very rational, it causes you to need to be more rational and actually see what the greater outcome here is. And again, in terms of, I would part, you know, people be saying, you know, you're, you're giving in or you're this or you're that. You're not giving in, you're being the adult in the room. That might gall you as an, as an issue from your own anger within the relationship. It is the right thing to do, is to try and make the atmosphere for your children as best as possible. So in this situation, it is about trying to mend the bridges and trying to maintain the contact with your ex-partner as a co-parent and with your child. The temptation here is to try and counter-alienate and that's going to do no good and it's not going to make anything better and it'll certainly make your child feel even more torn. So listen to this listener, very difficult circumstances and I'm asking you to do something very difficult which is to step up and step in and show up and try and park your own stuff for the benefit of your child. So next up. Okay, so the next question is, Hi Coleman, I have a question after listening to the last episode with Alison. I wonder, could you help me to know how do I help my children with dealing with loss and grief? They lost a mum three years ago when they were seven and nine. They are now 10 and 12. And I don't know how to help them. Thanks, Emil, for any guidance is appreciated. Okay, well, first, very sorry for your loss to that listener. And, and I, I, I'm interested that they referenced Alison's episode. And Alison's account and honesty and candidness about her own losses as uh, she lost her parents when she was a teenager 14 and 19 and again her she spoke about moving to Ireland being running away and you know having lost her family home and everything at such a young age I'm not surprised that that stirred up people's responses loss and grief is really difficult and it's probably I'd say to you Patrina and you know this it's probably the area that I find the most difficult to deal with because there isn't an answer to it there isn't a fix and so what you're trying to do in this situation is sit with somebody through their pain and I think it's I admire people who specialize in this area because it really does take an immense amount of resilience and strength to be able to do that because you're exposed to so much pain but in terms of children and loss children will experience loss in different ways and there's something I, I would coin the phrase maturational grief so they may lose their mum when they're seven or eight, and they may seem to underreact to it. But then when they're 13 or 14, and let's say they're hitting puberty or they're entering into a life where mum's role would be unique, it may be at that point that the loss hits home. And it's really difficult for a 13 or 14-year-old to say, I really miss my mum, even though it's been seven years since she passed, because everyone else may have moved on and has probably, you know, uh, learned to accept the loss and has moved on to a different place whereas that child might be only starting to experience their loss now and doesn't it's very conscious of bringing people back into the grief space so the issue here is they may not be feeling that they have the license to speak about the loss and then the most important thing you can do is to provide that opportunity provide the opportunity to share memory to share connection to share grief to share the loss of that person and allow them to be angry and frustrated and, and, and the injustice and unfairness of loss is something that we have to give permission to. And again, it's not about having the answers. It's not about bringing mom back, but it is about allowing these children to grieve when they feel 
ready or feel that it arrives. And, and grief is not something we control. It, it lands on our door, like, um, and often like a very unwelcome and uninvited guest at probably the most inopportune time. But if your children were very young when they lost their mom and they're now a little bit older, the, as I say, the concept of the loss may only be understood now. And from that point of view, unfortunately for dad, who may have gone through his own grieving process, he may need to accompany his children through this one. And again, if there are, reach out if you have aunts or sisters or mum's sister or mum's family, and I hope you have that support. Maybe these girls just need a listening ear of a mum uh, or someone who is a mum or has been a mum. And as much as dad is trying his best, he may not have that skill set or certainly that experience. And so be sure to know that they have supports outside of him and that, that he is willing to find them the help that they need. Uh, and again, we oftentimes bring children to counseling and therapy after a loss like that when it's far too fresh for them to even begin to process. And then years down the line, when it actually does hit, we may not be offering that at that point. So again, not to pathologize, grief is difficult and it's very hard to, to decide what is an abnormal grief reaction because it absolutely depends on the relationship you have with the person you've lost. Um, but in this case, it is about trying to provide whatever supports, practical or otherwise, that these girls need, um, but accepting that they may be re-entering a grief journey many years after it has passed because it's only relevant to them now. Um, but again, uh, I wish this listener well with trying to, to support his daughters after that loss. But the other side of it is, and I would say this with as much lack of offense because I've never been in that position, thankfully, my both of my parents are still alive, but I've seen some incredible resilient children who've come through experiences of parental loss and have you know, shown such courage and drive and connection that uh, it would b- blow you away in terms of their, their strength and courage and, and, and integrity with which they manage that. So as I say, hopefully your daughters will, will have that outcome. Um, they'll never forget their mom, but they may be able to, to keep going and, and managing life a little bit better. So I wish that family well. So the next question is, hi, Coleman. One thing I can never get clear instruction on is how to know when and if you should refer to a GP or mental health service or if it is just age appropriate issues. You are such a worthwhile support to parents out there. Oh, thank you very much. I, I, I think from the point of view, this is an interesting question because we're looking at child and adolescent mental health services and they might be the first port of call when we have a child with difficulty. But and I'm going to say something controversial now. Maybe the child mental health service should be called a child mental illness service because from the point of view of not everything is a CAMS suitable referral. So if a child is suffering from trauma or social difficulties or difficulties in their family or educational needs or dyslexia or learning needs, the CAMS isn't the right spot because that's not their level of expertise. There are other organizations, educational psychology, TUSLA, social supports, family support centers, which may be far better place to do that. And so the most important thing when you have a child with difficulty is being signposted to join the right queue for where you will get the support that you need. And so from the point of view of if there's an an interference with functioning and the child's school attendance, their sleep, their appetite, and there's clearly an impact there, it's about going to the, the GP being the signpost service that we have. But, and I would plead to all GPs to point the child in the direction of where the greatest need is. And so if it is a social need or if it is a need around relationships or it may be an environmental situation, maybe there is a a social intervention that would be best placed. 
if it's an educational issue, then maybe somewhere like NEPS or somewhere your National Educational Psychological Service might be the best way. But if there is a presence of what we'd understand to be a pathology or a symptom, be that an eating disorder, OCD, depression, anxiety, then CAMS is the right place for them to be. And I, I just think for ourselves and for parents out there, we're not really sure what each service does and which queue we should be in. And again, and I, I, I appeal to not insult any GPs in this comment either, but many GPs are not overly aware of that either. And that's a, it's an onus on the services to be more, uh, I suppose, communicative about what their specialty is and, and trying to... But I do believe that our child and adolescent mental health services could do with an infrastructural change where there's better signposting because there's nothing in, and Katrina, you'll know this as well when you're sitting in community mental health service or a CAMS clinic and somebody comes and you know they're in the wrong queue and they've been in that queue for 12 months and you have to say to them you're in the wrong space it's a really difficult situation for them to be in and oftentimes we will try and do what we can but we're not best placed to do it and so from the point of view of it's like I would always use the example of, you know, if your plumber has finished plumbing your bathroom and you ask him to tie your kitchen, you know, it's not his expertise, but he might give it a go, but he might not do it as well as the other person would. And you're better off not stretching that and going to the person where the expertise is or where the support and resources are. So in a long-winded way, I think when functioning is disturbed, you need to look for help. But the second question is, what help do I need? And what is best place to help me? And I think... If, uh, if our Minister for Health or anyone's looking out there, I think some sort of a, a signposting service for GPs in primary care to say, okay, this is primarily a social issue. You need to join that queue. This is a trauma issue. This is your queue. This is an educational issue. And this is a, a child and adolescent mental health issue. And that's there for this queue. Uh, and, and much of that, I think, would help so many families uh, have the heartache of disappointment when they have realized that they've been in the wrong queue or that they end up in a service that isn't best place to function that way. And uh, one of the episodes we're going to have down the line, we're, we're, some of the questions, if, if there are listeners who've sent in questions about ASD, which is Autistic Spectrum Disorder, we're parking all those questions for one episode that's going to especially look at that. And again, that will probably go to some degree to, to, to outline where CAMS can be helpful in those situations and maybe where other support services need to be accessed. So that'll be uh, in a week or two, we'll keep the listeners posted on that one. But again, it's a functioning issue. When functioning is, is being compromised, look for help, but look for the right help and make sure you join the right queue would be my tip on that one. Okay, so the next question is, I am extremely worried about my 10-year-old son who has no friends at school. He has dyspraxia and dislikes PE and sport. He also says he doesn't like any of the games his peers play, so walks to the yard on his own. He does have one or two friends he sees very occasionally outside of school, but I don't think he understands compromise and the give-and-take nature of relationships. He also suffers from anxiety, which is health-related, and I really feel that one or two school pals could really help him. Any advice, usually appreciated. I've tried play dates, which are not reciprocated. Okay, this is a really difficult situation. And uh, the first thing I'd say to this listener is that you're not on your own. We have we come across this quite a bit. Again, I think there's something about this that's cultural. I do believe that schools and, and our culture have a very narrow normative around what children do. And so... If you're a little bit on the left-hand side of sporty or competitive, there really doesn't seem to be space for you in, in many of the schoolyard politics. And I, 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 don't, I don't know, Patrina, if this is something you would agree on, but 
there's a lot less subcultures in children now. Like remember we used to have like the, the kind of gothy kids and then there was the emo Not kids so and then the creative kids and then there was the sporty kids and then there was the kind of academic kids and that sort of stuff. There seems to be, and then it's really weird, in a world where we've never had more choice, there seems to be such a narrow normative from which there's this massive big group in the middle who are very mainstream. And then the, the other sides are getting narrower and narrower. And I, I think that's a real loss because, and even if you, if you look at it from regional accents, we, you would have a child from Sligo, Cork, Valley de Hob, and you wouldn't know they were from that because the accent has diluted into some sort of American version of Nickelodeanish or something. But from the point of view, there is this um, a, a real lack of selection of tribes of young people. And again, I think we, we kind of go, okay, they have to do sport or speech and drama. And they're the two options. And that's not really enough. We need to have a whole plethora of things for children who A, are not competitive, B, are not physically sporty, because they will have creative skills. They will have a skill set that they will be able to manage and will be able to enjoy. But we need to create the opportunities for that. And I think, and I, I would say, and for a very good reason, the scouting Ireland has gone through a lot of press, but the, the scouts were an option years ago for people who maybe had different interests. Um, there were certainly things that you could do if you were go to your hands, you could get involved in camps around, you know, metalwork and all these sorts of things. Whereas um, there seems to be kind of coding camps uh, and, you know, uh, sports camps. And I think from the point of view of we need to put something more, all year round for children who are a little bit less competitive and less sporty. And that doesn't answer this person's question, but I just think that's an issue from a, an infrastructural point of view that we need to reward children for other things other than being bright and running fast. And I think that's something that maybe our school system is, is lacking a little bit. But anyway, the issue around that is I would hope in secondary school there would be more avenues for that in terms of joining better, more diverse type of groups and, and finding tribes. And children like this, when they get to college, will always thrive because they'll find their tribe at that point because they're going to meet like-minded people who have similar interests. And so, but this lady is at a level that that's a long way off for her now. The most important thing you do in this situation is protecting your child's self-worth, self-belief and self-value. And that if they are kind of judging that on how they are accepted by their peer group, they are not going to feel enough. And uh, there's a famous statement that if you ask a fish to climb a tree, they're going to feel like a failure. Do you know what I mean? So, but if you ask a, a monkey to swim, he's going to feel like a failure either. So it's about giving you a skill set that you... And your child might have great deal of skill set in, I don't know, making his own YouTube videos or creative arts or musically, whatever that might be. And he needs to have an opportunity to find his value in those things. So if the school environment isn't the one for you, then you need to find the extracurricular space that allows that to happen. And I've seen so many children find solace or find identity in a drama society or in a film club or in even in... Uh, um, uh, say, for example, the Centres for Talented Youth or whatever the case may be, they find people who are who are like them and they feel less alone. So maybe it's about, and again, in the pandemic, very difficult to do that when so many things are curtailed and I fully appreciate the, the limitations on that. But that's maybe a longer-term strategy. The, the strategy at the moment is making sure he has a good relationship with himself, sees his own value, that he doesn't judge himself by his level of, of being accepted. And in actual fact, the fact that he is sticking to his guns and not endeavouring to fit in might not be a bad thing in the sense that children, that we, we make a big mistake between the difference between fitting in and belonging. And you, many children spend a lifetime fitting in 
but never have that sense of belonging. And again, with the more narrow, narrow choices and normatives, we're going to have more children trying to fit in rather than finding a space where they actually belong. So it is about trying to find his value, reassure him of his own value and recognize the internal variables that he has. Undoubtedly, he's probably a very kind, sensitive, thoughtful boy. He's not going to get medals and prizes for that. He's not going to get probably gold stars for it in school. But if he gets rewarded from it at home, then you're saying that this is a culture that we value and he will in turn learn to value that himself. So short term, keep him protected, keep the self-esteem, self-worth and nurture that as much as you can. Try not to let him see himself through the eyes of the other, but see himself through his own eyes and through yours. And when we get through this pandemic and things start to resort to some normal, find his tribe. Okay, so the next question is coming in from another listener. Fortunately, they wanted to thank you for creating the Fab podcast series and that they're really enjoying from your learning. Their question is regarding self-worth. You've mentioned self-worth a few times in your discussions, and I really realize that my self-worth is quite low. I have a 13-year-old son, and I worry that his self-worth might be low also. But I am aware I could be projecting my stuff onto him. How do I as a parent, build up self-worth and how can I support help build my son's self-worth? Wow, what a brilliant question. And again, self-worth and self-value is something I bang on a lot about because I say I think it's hugely important. I think it is one of the most important resilient skills that we have to cope with our lives. And, you know, from the point of view of, and I use this example when I'm working with children, if I was in a therapy session and somebody stood up and said, you're rubbish and you're the worst therapist I ever had and stormed out of the room, I'd have a choice there. I can either retire and become a florist or something instead, or else I can say, well, what can I do differently? What can I, how can I make this? And is that a reflection of who I am? And oftentimes, Petrina, what I would do, and you'd know this, I would go down to my office and I would take out the thank you cards that people have given me over the years and I'd read them. And it reassures me that I've helped more people than I've hindered in my career, hopefully. And then you just sit there and you go, actually, I am, I'm doing my best here. And maybe that wasn't my finest hour, but I'm trying my best to be a good dad, to be a good son, to be a good colleague. And I'm doing it with the, the resources that I have. I'm trying my best and I'm showing up. And that's all I can do at the moment. And in terms of just giving yourself that slack and allowing yourself to show some compassion for your own limitations in some respects, then when you're doing enough, you're doing enough. It's all you can do. And for this person, it isn't reduce your expectations of yourself and trying to know that you're showing up and you're doing your best. And when you're doing that, that is enough. And I think from the point of view, the, the expectation minus reality equals happiness. And people who know me have heard me speak know that I rant about this. The most thing we can do is reduce our expectations. Your life can get so much better in an instant if you were just to drop your standards. And from the point of view of it is absolutely imperative that we know that we are enough, know that we're doing. And when you make a decision, you make it with only the resources available to you at the time. So yes, it might be the wrong one, but you didn't knowingly make the wrong decision. You made it with the best of the intention. And judge yourself by your intentions, not your ability. And that would be really a good start. In terms of this lady, do protect your child from your own issues. Again, and Patrina, you'll be able to agree with this, where the parents are very self-critical, a child will pick up that that's the way to be. That's the way you you should have a relationship with yourself. And so as Irish people, we're very cautious about being arrogant and narcissistic and we're not going to stand in front of the mirror and say, I love you, kid, you know, to ourselves. But we do have to give ourselves a break sometimes and say, look, this is really tough and I'm doing my best. And 
that's actually enough right now. Uh, and I think that's a lesson in that from that listener's question for all of us out there at the moment. Times are really tough. And if, you know, maybe we're not failing everything, maybe we're just surviving everything. And I think that's, that's enough for now, if that makes sense. So yeah, drop your expectations and, uh, you know, give yourself a break. I think it's really good actually just listening to that, that, you know, she has an awareness that she may well be projecting her own stuff onto her child, which is really, really good. A hundred percent. And it's always, I love this question from a teenager and they'll say, Colin, I'm worried I might be a psychopath. And you're going, the fact that you worried about it means you're not. And so this person, the parents who are listening and writing in and asking these questions about how, how is my behavior having an impact on my child? The fact that they're asking the question says you're doing something about it and you're trying to manage it. And if this is anything for that listener's self-worth, go you. you yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay, so the final question, Coleman, is I know you hate the term parenting expert and you have said many times that there is no such thing, but can you tell the listeners about who is in your family and what do you find challenging about parenting and what you would see as your top tips for managing the role? This will be very interesting. Okay, that wasn't in the script. <laughs> Um, okay, the, yeah, I, I, I hate the term parenting expert. I don't think the perfect, perfect parent exists. And I would never describe myself as that. My expertise comes from working with children and families for 25 years and seeing as much about the families who do it well and learning from that as much as perhaps the, the common mistakes people make. And so my advice comes from that as opposed to it being uh, heralding that I have this skill set and I use it all the time, far from it. Uh, I would be honest with you and say that there are many parts of parenting I really struggle with. I'm going to give you a, p- a funny example, but if um, my eight-year-old daughter has had her hair for eight years and I still can't seem to tie it up every time I tie it up. She looks like something out of a thriller video within five minutes. So, uh, and, and, and that's a skill I can't manage. I would say my, the greatest challenge I have uh, as a parent is maybe my patience. And I struggle with that. And I, I think from the point of view of, and it's mad because I work, I teach people for a living, um, but teaching my children something like tying laces, cycling bikes, I really get frustrated really too easily. And I oftentimes have to subcontract that job out to somebody else because I just know my own limitation that it'll end up me getting cross or frustrated. And it's really, not, I'm not proud of that at all, but it is certainly something that, I suppose I've spotted in my own issues with that. The challenge for me, I think, is a lot of things about the kind of different children. And, and this is where my parenting issue or my parenting philosophy comes from. My eldest lad is really sensitive and kind of quiet, typically oldest child. My daughter is boisterous and able. And my third lad, I don't know where he came from. But it, it just would be simply impossible to parent them all the same. So... The whole issue around being a parent myself is kind of said, well, there is no one way to parent. You have to be able, and, and I'm finding out, and you'll know this, Petrina, from our work, the parents who are able to respond to the needs of the child at that moment and show that flexibility or show that openness or even be able to step back when they need to and step forward when they do. So it's an evolving process. And I think the idea that we peddle the nine ways to parent is nonsense because that would suggest that there's only one type of child. The skill here is being able to understand why your child feels the way they feel, what might be going on for them, and responding to that as opposed to the thing that's that's presenting itself. Because the behavior is always the signpost to the problem. It is not the problem. And I would always use this example. 
uh, and I, I sometimes cause confusion by it, so if you don't understand it, please clarify it. If a girl comes down, say your daughter comes down in the morning and she's going to get a bowl of cornflakes and there's none left, and she looks at her other sister who's eating the last of the cornflakes, right? If she gets the bowl, flings it against the wall and says, I hate my life and I hate this family and storms out into the back garden, the answer for you and your husband isn't somebody run down and get more cornflakes, right? Because the cornflakes aren't the problem. The cornflakes is, that's the symptom. The problem is how she's feeling. And the answer there is to go out and find out in the garden what's going on. What is that about? And trying to say, I want to hear it. I want to, I want to know how you feel and I want to help you with that feeling as opposed to, because the temptation there is just to sanction her give out to her, tell her she's being unreasonable and lash out. And that may be what she deserves because she's thrown a, a plate against the wall. It's not what she needs. She needs the conversation. And being able to park our own desires to not give them what they deserve, but actually give them what they need, for me, is the skill of parenting. And that's the one that I am trying to do for myself. But as I say in every episode, parenting is aspirational. We never get it right every time. And despite the WhatsApp groups and the Instagram pictures, other people aren't getting it right either. And so from the point of view, it is ultimately, and this is, I, I get criticized for this, parenting is an exercise in failure, but you just have to try and not fail as bad the next time around or <laughs> learn from your failure because that's just what it is. And I think learning to accept that has helped me. But yes, of course, the uh, patience, uh, hair tying, um, Oh yeah, hair brushing, uh, <laughs> partly because I'm bald and haven't really had a use of a hairbrush in about 20 years. Um, but no, there uh, obviously there are other things that I would, you know, my own competitiveness, all that sort of stuff is something I continually have to keep in check. Um, but uh, yeah, no, definitely don't have it mastered, Petrina, as well, you know. But um, I think from the point of view of if I haven't given up, I haven't failed. And so from that point of view, it's about continuing to learn as best you can, I think. Yeah, and I think that's actually one of your top tips and you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely not easy to parent. No, absolutely. And, and the, the thing is, and I say this, I think we'll end the episode on this one. Uh, parenting is simple. It's just not easy. But the simpler you make it, the easier it gets. And I think from that point of view, that's a phrase borrowed from my father who describes golf in that way. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think there's a, there's a parallel to parenting as well. Listen, Trina Ty, thank you ever so much for joining me on the Listener Specials episode. And we might see you again in another episode later on. But for now, I just want to say thank you for listening. I want to say to you that if you have any questions that you want to get in for the next episode, uh, please forward them to askingforaparent.gmail.com or you can get us through the Asking for a Parent Instagram, Twitter and Facebook pages. Uh, you have a great episode coming up next Wednesday, which will be dropped on Wednesday morning. You'll be really ex- excited about this one. It's a very very good guest who's got some wonderful stories to share and until then take care for now be safe mind yourselves all the best